Thank you. Good morning. Hey, we continue in Philemon, and if you're not familiar with Paul's letter to Philemon, The letter that Paul wrote to him concerns a slave of the first century in Rome. And it's, uh, it's quite different than New World slavery, the slavery that is closer to, uh, to our own national background. Uh, not to say that it wasn't oppressive by any means, but it was very different in, in many respects. Um, probably most of all because it wasn't, uh, didn't have racial overtones. Uh, it didn't matter what color of your skin or your background or your nationality. Uh, there were a number of ways in which you could find yourself a slave in the first century. And the percentage of slaves was was uh, strikingly high. Uh, in fact, in Italy, it was between 35 and 40 percent of the population. And across the Roman Empire, uh, it was about one-tenth of the population. And Donisimus, the subject of this letter, is a slave. And I thought, uh, before I read uh, verses 8 through 16, which we want to look at this morning in particular, I would share with you an actual letter. It's probably the closest thing to anything we have that has survived to Paul's letter to Philemon. And Philemon is the master, that is, he's the owner of Onesimus, and Onesimus has run away, and in that in the course of running away, he has wronged Philemon. There are indications that lead us to believe that he had probably uh, taken some of Philemon's money or property uh, in the pursuit of his own escape. But we do have a letter uh, from that period, and uh, before I read it to you, I wanted to show you a map. Uh, Italy is familiar to us. It looks kind of like a boot on the left-hand corner. That's where Rome is. And uh, where you see uh, Ephesus and Colossae, oh, it looks like things are a little off this morning uh, in this, but that is in Turkey. And we've heard a lot about Turkey lately. And it is in Turkey and in that area where uh, Colossae is mentioned in red, that you have uh, the cities that the Apostle John wrote his letter to the churches of that area uh, in Revelation, for example, to kind of orient you. But up north, if you just go above Colossae, you see Bithynia. And uh, Bithynia was a province of the Roman Empire, and its governor was a man named Pliny. And Paul's letter to, the Philemon, to Philemon falls uh, about in the middle between the resurrection of Jesus and this letter of the governor of Bithynia, Pliny, who had been, uh, I mean, he was a significant figure. Uh, he'd been a consul of Rome, a senator of Rome. Now he's governor 
Uh, he has a lot of clout. He has a lot of rank and status. And he writes to a friend. His name is Sabinianus. We don't know anything more about him. But in this letter from Pliny, and we have his letters and other artifacts about him because he was an important man, he writes to his friend on behalf of a former slave who's now a freedman but was still dependent on his friend, and he's run away. And when he ran away, he ran away because of some problem with his owner, and he has come to Pliny asking Pliny to intercede, just like Paul intercedes on behalf of Onesimus with Philemon. And I'd like to just read you this so you can get a feel of an actual letter like the actual letter of Paul, and we can use it to kind of help us appreciate how strikingly different is the world through the eyes of Paul because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his cross and resurrection. And so this is the letter. He's, Pliny writes, <clears throat> you told me you'd been angry with a freedman of yours, and now he's come to see me. He threw himself at my feet, clung on to me as though I were you. He wept a lot. He asked for a lot, though he kept quiet about a lot too. To sum it up, he made me believe that he was truly sorry. I think he's a changed character because he really does feel that he did wrong. Yes, I know you're angry. And I know, too, that you have a right to be angry. But mercy earns most praise when anger is fully justified. Once you had an affection for this fellow, and I hope you will again, for the moment it's enough if you let yourself be placated. You can be angry again if you like, and certainly if he deserves it, and you'll have all the more reason if you've been placated now. He's young, he's in tears, and you have a kind heart. Make all that count. Don't torture him. Don't torture yourself either. Anger is always torture for a soft heart like yours. I'm afraid it will look as though I'm putting pressure on you, not simply making a request if I join my prayers to his but I'm going to do it anyway, and all the more fully and thoroughly because I've given him a sharp and severe talking to, and I've warned him clearly that I won't make such a request again. Now, I said this because he needed a good fright, and I said it to him rather than to you because it's just possible that I shall make another request and receive it too, always supposing it's an appropriate thing for me to ask you and for you to grant it yours sincerely. Now I'd like to read in the letter to Philemon, verses 8 through 16. Though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child 
Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be under compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bond servant or just literally as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, I want you to notice the difference between these two letters. The first, the one of plenty, depends on an apology. That's the heartbeat of the letter. He feels sorry for himself. You know, he apologizes. He's made amends. He knows he's wrong. In the letter to Philemon, there's no apology. It depends on something else altogether. That's very important to realize. In the letter of Pliny, there's no change of social position. In Paul's letter to Philemon, there is a radical shift of social position and status. In Pliny's letter, he's still at the top, his friend is in the middle, and the freedman, the former slave, is still at the bottom. But in Paul's letter, Paul is not a governor, he's a prisoner a prisoner for Christ's sake. And yet from this lowly position, he makes an appeal. And the appeal involves a total shift in the status of Onesimus. Both intervene by authority, but Pliny is at the top. And in a in society, Paul is at the bottom. He himself is a prisoner, and yet there's an authority of a different kind by which he appeals to Philemon. These are some striking differences I want you to have some sense of, because there's been an earthquake. There's been a total change in the world through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it changes the way Paul talks about Onesimus to Philemon. For it is the case that whereas in the first letter, it's the status quo. Things continue as they were. But in Paul's letter to Philemon, in verse 16, we come to the theme of this letter. In fact, the theme of the gospel. Uketi. Uketi. No more, no longer, no further. 
And we saw in that verse 16, no more, no longer, no further a slave, but more than a slave, says Paul, a beloved brother. both in the flesh and in the Lord. It is true that in Christ no longer means new beginnings, new possibilities. Well, it's supposed to say that, but it doesn't. But that is the emphasis of Philemon. And I want to give you just a a sense of how everybody, and I put that in quotations because there would be some exceptions, but what I'm referring to is the culture, the climate of the day. And it's a climate that reigns even in our world, a very different one in so many ways. But the culture, the worldly perspective, in so many ways has not changed. And yet there's been this radical intervention. Jesus Christ, the intervention between God and us, and it's reflected in this letter where Paul intervenes between Onesimus and Philemon. Just to give you a sense of how everyone sees an Onesimus, a slave, not an equal. I wanted to just, I condensed very briefly a writing by a a great figure of history of the Roman Empire uh, period who was a contemporary, a rough contemporary of Paul. Um, His name is Plutarch, and he was a magistrate, he was uh, uh, an official, he was highly educated, he was a mild-mannered Roman, he was a writer and a philosopher and widely admired and read in the Roman Empire. He wrote an essay on anger, and in this essay on anger, he took up the subject of slaves and how we He would talk about how we, his readership, would treat slaves because, as I pointed out in previous messages on Philemon, uh, slaves were common and prominent. Um, A person like Philemon probably owned more than one slave, even though Philemon is a Christian. And that's why it becomes especially important because Philemon is being asked to alter the way he sees the world that he's grown up in, that he's, uh, so to speak, been trained by, and now Christ has come into his life. He's a significant figure, as we saw last Sunday, within the church of Colossae, from the letter to the Colossians that we're familiar with. That's where he lived. That's where Onesimus was. And it is in that area... uh, that it was common to have slaves. And yet Paul's asking something of him which is going to challenge him and cause him to look at his life differently and to look at Onesimus uh, differently. Well, Plutarch writes, 
about slaves, and we learn a few things about him. He advocates patience. He says, master your anger. Be patient with them. Apply gentleness. It can be done because slaves are not our equals. There's no envy or fear of rivalry. We have absolute power with no one to oppose or stop us. But that absolute power can lead to big mistakes when we're heavy-handed and angry. He says these mistakes can injure our slaves, affect productivity, and injure our virtue. So he recommends softening such power with gentleness and says it can be a real hard thing to do, to carry out, because it'll be a test of the will. He adds, when wife and friends accuse us of being weak and easygoing. He says it's best to use reasoning and not anger. It's a more effective form of governing slaves. And he adds, reverence, which is a form of fear, is far more productive than unmerciful beatings. It's far better to be the master who gives orders with a silent nod than the master who uses blows and branding irons. And he encourages us to listen to them. It gives you time to soften your anger, and they respond better to a just punishment. It, it avoids the most shameful thing, he says, the plea of the slave that is more just than that of his master. Now, maybe that gives you just a little feel for how someone like a Philemon might look at an Onesimus. And what I want us to appreciate is in this letter to Philemon, Paul is not saying, Philemon, treat Onesimus better. He's not saying what Plutarch said. Paul is saying something different. He's not saying to Philemon, Philemon, you're a Christian. You should be nicer. You should be more patient. You shouldn't be angry. You should be merciful. You should be gentle. He's not saying that. What Paul is saying is, Philemon, you should see Onesimus differently because Onesimus is not your slave. He is your equal. And that's a big difference. And I think that touches on us all. Because the fact of the matter is, is that when we get angry, when we get upset, when we lash out or we treat others, it doesn't matter whether they have an actual status in our society as a slave or someone else. The fact of the matter is, is that we feel superior at a time like that. And we treat that person not as an equal because we don't see them with the right eyes. We don't see them with the eyes of Christ. How Christ sees Onesimus, we can see in what Paul writes here. In verse 10, he doesn't see a slave. He calls Onesimus my child. 
And that's because Onesimus, while he was with Paul in the circumstances of his imprisonment, his chains, Paul won Onesimus to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Onesimus, he calls his child. It's, he, he actually uses the word that would be used of a woman begetting, giving birth to a child. He says, I've given birth to Onesimus. In verse 11, he says, he was useless. He was of no use to you, but now he is very useful. A play on words. And a play on Onesimus' name because Onesimus means profitable. And what Paul is saying to Philemon is, this man that you have regarded as not an equal is your equal. In fact, he's a beloved brother. He is profitable. He is not useless. He is useful. He says in verse 12, I'm sending him back. And here, we really understand the kind of thing that we will have to face as we follow Jesus Christ, because we're going to be led into difficulties in our own relationships, as we well know. If we are to follow Christ and live out this newness of life that has come about through the reconciliation won for us through Jesus, then that means we're going to have to live differently. We're going to have to live in his power, in his love, not in our own, in order to really live out the difference that has taken place in us. And He says in verse 12, I'm sending him back, but there is an interesting use of this word. It it was a word that was technically used of sending something up, or we would say down, like in law, for a, a judicial review. I'm sending this back, like the higher court might send it back to the lower court to make the decision. And Paul knows that this decision has to be Philemon's because Philemon is the master. The law of the land supports this structure, you know, the way Onesimus is viewed. But Paul is appealing to him when he says, I'm sending him back, but then what he says is, I'm sending back for your judicial decision, if you will, my heart. And it's as though he's saying, hold my heart carefully. Treat my heart tenderly. Don't step on my heart. This man is my heart. Paul has identified himself with Onesimus, and Onesimus is now identified with Paul. What a difference that makes. In verse 13, he says, I want to keep him for myself. In verse 14, he says, I'm submitting to your consent. I want your goodness, which is a reference to the goodness back in verse 6 that he, he was the subject of his prayer that Philemon might see every good that leads to 
what Christ is doing in their midst. And uh, verse 15, he says, think about it this way, Philemon. Maybe you were separated, you and Onesimus, when he ran away. Maybe you were separated for this time that you should have him back forever. I'll take that up in the future, but Paul wants Philemon to see God's hand in this. I don't know if you've seen it. There was a a video that was out by ESPN, the, the sports network. But what caught my attention this last week was the heading. This is how it said. It said, um, uh, son thought his dad forgot his 12th birthday. Little did he know it was all part of his father's plan. And I immediately thought of Philemon when when Paul says, maybe you were separated for a time, implying God's in this. And how often is it that if we could see God at work in the midst of our difficulties, not just that sudden one of the day that frustrates us or irritates us or the action of another person that's inconsiderate or unkind, but even in the midst of some of those long and duration (laughs) things that you just think, how long can this go on? And remember that it's all part of the Father's plan. Paul is saying maybe this is all part of our Father's plan. What if you looked at it that way? And then verse 16, uketi, that's that Greek word that we've learned. No more, no longer, no further a slave. More than, more than. How we see Onesimus, that's the third thing I wanted us to appreciate this morning. You know, people get pegged. Maybe you've been pegged. If you wonder what I mean by pegged, it's kind of like profiling. You've been profiled. I remember some years ago, it came to mind this week as I was thinking about this, uh, we were at a very busy intersection in Modesto where I lived at the time. It was called Five Points, five different roads all converging on one intersection with that five lights. and not just one lane, but two lanes, in some cases, converging. And in the process of this, as we were turning, a man flipped me off. Now, I don't know. Do you know what that means? I hope you do. Um, I don't remember doing anything to deserve it, but that's not important. The man that flipped me off was a longtime family friend. I'm not kidding you. I grew up knowing this man and his wife. He and his wife played canasta with my parents, had us over to dinner, and he's an elder in our church. And he didn't see me. You know, he didn't know it was me. What happens when someone does that? 
I didn't want to talk about the times I've done that kind of thing. I mean, in principle, in principle. I can, I can even remember back, I'm sorry to admit this, but I am just like you and you are just like me. There even have been probably some times that I did that in my distant past. But what's more disturbing to me is that that can happen even on a day like this, after preaching a sermon like this. It's that reaction. I'm justified. You've wronged me. You've insulted me. And in that moment, we feel superior. That person is an inferior, and they can be, deserve to be treated by us in whatever manner we wish. We don't see that person through the eyes of Jesus at that moment. We see that person like Philemon could look at an Onesimus, and that's the powerful thing. And yet, what if he saw me, not just some impersonal person, but the son of his beloved friends, the son that he has embraced? I'm not kidding you. What if he saw me that way? How would he look at my error if he saw error in what I had done? How would he resolve, you know, that tension in his heart that caused him to give me such a condescending insult? And what I want us to see in this is this is what we, this is what we go through, but yet as Christ is working in our lives, he's cultivating in us a different set of eyes to not see people as inferiors or superiors, but equals, especially them within the household of faith, because the person that we look at and, and we profile or we stereotype or we classify as being inferior or superior and our behavior resulting accordingly that person is a beloved child of our Heavenly Father. If we saw people as God sees people, our behavior would be very different. And it does cause us to think, who do we see across the street, across the classroom? or even across the dinner table. And it doesn't mean that the frustrations just disappear because we, we you know, adopt the Lord's perspective. But it does change our heart. And we become part of a healing work of God, a redeeming love of God that has changed everything, changed the difference between the whole outlook of a plenty with the whole outlook of a Paul, in whom God is reconciling the world in Jesus Christ. And that same reconciling work God wants to be operative in you and me. In you and me. I read a story this last week. I thought it would encourage us uh, because... I was thinking, what story can inspire us if not the gospel? 
That's the greatest story of all. And it's the story that we belong to, that we're a part of. It's our story now. But I did read a story that made me think of the gospel, and I want to share it with you. It was written by Elizabeth Gilbert. I mean, I call it a story. It actually happened just like the gospel actually happened. But she writes, Some years ago, I was stuck on a crosstown bus in New York City during rush hour. I can't imagine what that's like. Traffic was barely moving. The bus was filled with cold, tired people who were deeply irritated with one another. With the rainy, sleet-like weather, with the world itself. Two men barked at each other about a shove that might or might not have been intentional. A pregnant woman got on, and nobody offered her a seat. Rage was in the air. No mercy would be found here. But as the bus approached 7th Avenue, the driver got on the intercom. Folks, he said, I know you've had a rough day and you're frustrated. I can't do anything about the weather or the traffic. But here's what I can do. As each one of you gets off the bus, I will reach out my hand to you. As you walk by, drop your troubles into the palm of my hand, okay? Don't take your problems home to your families tonight. Just leave them with me. My route goes right by the Hudson River, and when I drive by there later, I'll open the window and throw your troubles in the water. Sound good? It was as if a spell had lifted. Everyone burst out laughing. Faces gleamed with surprised delight. People who had been pretending for the past hour not to notice each other's existence were suddenly grinning at each other like, is this guy serious? He was serious. And at the next stop, just as promised, the driver reached out his hand, palm up, and waited. One by one, all the ex exiting commuters placed their hand just above his and mimed the gesture of dropping something into his palm. Some people laughed as they did this. Some teared up, but everyone did it. The driver repeated the same lovely ritual at the next stop too, and the next, all the way to the river. I'd like to think of us like I think of that bus driver. And instead of the Hudson, it's the cross. Oh, the beauty of the story for us. I mean, it, uh, it just breathes what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, such great love, taking our troubles upon ourselves, upon himself, and freeing our hearts. Each one of us can be such a light because of Christ, because of the gospel. And we can let Christ bear our burdens.
and it can change the way we see one another so that we can love them with the love of Jesus Christ. Will you stand? I'm going to pray for us, and as uh, I say weekly, I'm going to be up here along with pastoral staff, elders, their wives. If God has spoken to you this morning, and you want to pray with me or us about that, whether it's to intercede for another or to intercede before the Lord for yourself, and we can pray with you, please don't leave without coming to the Lord with those matters he's put on your heart. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Your word is unique because your gospel is unique, because your son is unique, because your love, your love has set it all in motion that we might come home and know you, our creator, our loving Father. We praise and thank you for your word, for your Son, Jesus Christ, and for the work of your Holy Spirit. And it's in his matchless name we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you.